Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 18th, we're studying Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. In response to a question from the Pharisees, Jesus teaches them and his disciples concerning the coming of the kingdom of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you again. Let's talk some context as we get started. We're at the end of chapter 17 in the Gospel of Luke. What should we know about Luke, his Gospel, the context to help us into this text today? Well, Luke has a lot of words about journeying, about traveling, and the direction that Jesus travels in general has its finds its culmination in Jerusalem, of course, with his his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection, and eventually his his ascension as well. Um, but the uh, the so you have the kind of these travel notices that we have in Luke's gospel, where it indicates that Jesus is now moving toward. Jerusalem. So back at verse 11 in chapter 17, before we get to this particular uh, pericope, is uh, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And this appears to be the the place where he's at still whenever he's speaking these words that we come to today, uh, beginning in verse 20. Uh, so, it, it you know, again, Luke in general has kind of this idea of moving toward a, a culmination of of all things with Jesus. Uh, making his way toward Jerusalem. As far as a, a, a greater context, as far as relating to the verses that precede this or that follow this particular section that we're looking at today, there's not really a tight tie-in with them, I don't think, other than the fact that uh, it appears that he's he's doing some teaching and and perhaps um, you know the almost the entirety of chapters 17 and 18 might have taken place in one sitting where Jesus is is just teaching about various topics. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions in terms of how it, how or if it does tie into the the healing of the ten lepers in the previous text. Because I mean, or like it comes right after it. You know, he's asked a question by the Pharisees, but are we to think that they observed the healing, or that this is in any way in response to it, or is it just another account in this journey section of Luke's gospel? Well, I think you could say that it does relate to it, just not perhaps as directly as some other yeah. uh, sections of Scripture might, because obviously when we talk about the, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, part of that coming of the kingdom of heaven, in particular during Jesus' earthly ministry, is the fulfillment of the Scriptures about what will happen when the Messiah is with his people. And the healing of lepers and various healings that we have throughout uh, the Gospels are fulfillments of what was said would happen when the Messiah would come. 
And so I think in that regard, yes, you could say that it relates, just not quite as directly, perhaps, as some other passages do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I, I think that makes sense. In terms of the, the kingdom, because that is going to be the, the topic for our consideration, I think that that really does tie our text together, the kingdom coming. With, with this phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, that's the way that Matthew usually likes to phrase it. What what should we have in our minds? What When we think of the kingdom of God, what should we be thinking of? Well, there's kind of three different um, things working here. You have the fact that the kingdom of God comes when Jesus comes, you know, and we have the, you know, the, the preparation by John the Baptist who says, you know, repent for the for the kingdom of, of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's talking about the fact that Jesus, of course, is coming into the world. Uh, and in the same way Jesus does that, too, he says repent, you know, the same words, basically, mm-hmm. in his sermon as in John's, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And that coming of the kingdom uh, kind of has three different uh, foci. You have first the idea that Jesus is here now, and performing various things during part of his earthly ministry, his teaching, his healing, his miracles of all different kinds. Uh, and then you have the the kingdom of heaven is here in the sense that we live in the church's age right now, where God is continuing to come to us, bringing us the gifts of the cross, uh, forgiveness, life, and salvation delivered to us through his holy word and sacraments. And then, of course, and I think this is probably the thing that gets most people's attention is when they think of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, they usually think about the end of all things when Christ returns on the last day. Uh, and so there, there's kind of three things at work there when we talk about uh, what is the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, we can look at that from the standpoint catechetically. When we look at the, uh, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer where we pray, thy kingdom come. Uh, and, you know, we're kind of praying for all of that at the same time. And I think, if, I mean, just to tie those things together, one that seems to me that ties them together is that it's it's less about a place, though there is a there is an aspect of, of location, but it's more about the person, the king being there. You know, when when does the kingdom come? Well, it's when the king is present. So he's he's present now among the Pharisees, among the disciples. He's present in his church. He, he will be present, you know, in in a visible way on the last day. So it's, it's about where is that King present? Where is he active ruling? That really seems to tie those three aspects of the kingdom together. Yeah. And those questions of when and where are asked alternately by first the Pharisees who start off by asking about the when, and then at the very end, you get the disciples asking the where, and they're both kind of the wrong question. Okay. So, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Well, then let, let's take a look at the text and, and see if we can, through the wrong question being asked and Jesus giving answers, see if we tease some of this out about the kingdom of God. So we're in Luke 17, beginning at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, 
so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's our text for today. That's Luke 17, verses 22, 37. So the the Pharisees come back into view at the beginning of this text. We've seen them come in and out of the account of Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. What are what do they got? What do they have in mind when they ask about when the kingdom of God would come? What are, what do they think they're asking Jesus? Well, they're talking about the end times here, um, and you know it is it is true that the Pharisees are looking forward to a resurrection on the last day. Uh, there are kind of two big groups of uh, Jews that are dominant during Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe that there was a resurrection at all. Uh, And that's why they asked Jesus uh, kind of the ridiculous question that they asked him in Matthew 22 about, um, I don't remember how many, uh, how many husbands this woman had that died or something that were all brothers. And Jesus was, they were trying to challenge Jesus to answer this uh, kind of ridiculous question because they didn't believe the resurrection was true. But the, the Pharisees actually do believe uh, in the resurrection. So it's an honest question from them. Uh, but they're really not, you know, as we talked about earlier, those those three different um, aspects of the the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, they're really just focusing in on the end times with their question here. Uh, but um but at any rate, that's the that's kind of where Jesus ends up correcting them here as well. Sure. So in, in this case, it doesn't seem that there's ill intent on their part. There, there are there are moments where the Pharisees will come to Jesus, and and Luke will tell you they're trying to trap him or trick him in his words. But here, this this seems it's an honest question, even if a a misunderstanding is evident. They, they seem to want to know something from Jesus. There's not any ill intent. So what, what is Jesus' answer to this question about, here's the when, so what's Jesus' answer to their question about when the kingdom comes? Well, the first question, or the first answer is that it's not something that we can predict with any certainty. And of course, that's echoed by Jesus in other places as well, where he makes it clear that not even he knows Uh, when the end will come. No one can know when the end will come. uh, And it will come as a thief, like a thief in the night. That is, it cannot be predicted. Uh, And so, uh, in a sense, he's telling them, I can't answer your question because I don't really know the answer to your question. Um, But, but you know, he also turns it around on them a little bit and shows them that, uh, you know, it's not about us trying to read um, read the signs and predict a certain time when this end will come. 
but rather the more important thing is that we concentrate on the fact that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is actually in the midst of you right now. You have this kingdom with you right now at this moment. Okay, so in terms of the, the when and looking toward the last day, the answer is, I don't know and you don't know either. Right. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know, and you don't know, and we really shouldn't be wasting our time trying to figure it out. <laughs> okay. And of course, that, that does sound, you know, that sounds weird, I think, to, to hear Jesus say, I don't know. But this is one of those things I think we would say he chooses not to know this for our sakes. And I, I, I think it was, I can't remember who, who told me this, but the, the suggestion was, and I, I think this is helpful, Jesus refuses or chooses not to know the last day as a way to remind us we shouldn't be trying to find it out either. And I found that to be a helpful ex- explanation as to why Jesus doesn't know this. Yeah, I think that's helpful as well. And I, and I do think it's part of Jesus in his state of humiliation also, right. yeah. that he's not using his, not fully using his divine abilities in this particular instance, because yeah, we know that he's God, he knows all things. Uh, but he also, uh, for our sake, uh, sets aside those divine abilities during his state of humiliation. So, okay, there's that answer then when it comes to the kingdom coming on the last day, and he'll talk more about that when he speaks particularly to his disciples. But there's also, and I can't remember if you've used this terminology or or not yet, there's the now aspect of the kingdom and the not yet. He He draws the Pharisees' attention to something that is happening now. He says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What is What does that mean? Well, he's talking about himself, really, in effect. Uh, he is the personification of that kingdom. And I think that probably is the thing that does tie us most directly back to the verses that precede all of this, because we have the healing of uh, the ten lepers, and that is a sign of the kingdom being in the midst of you right now. Because, you know, as Jesus answered John the Baptist, who sends these uh um, John, you know, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And what Jesus does is he points to that which he said and that which he's done, you know. Uh, look at the things that are happening around you. Yes, yes, I am the one who uh, is to come. It's evident by the, um, uh, by the works that I'm doing uh, that I am the fulfillment of the Scripture's and that the kingdom of, of heaven is in the midst of you. So when he says it's in the midst of you, it's it's not like something inside their heart, but he's, you're saying he's talking about uh, himself. Yeah. The, the fact that he's here means the kingdom is here now. Yeah, that's that's the way to look at that. That's that, Yeah, and that's, that's a good thing to make sure we don't misunderstand here, is it's not like each, you know, each of us has the, the kingdom of God in our heart or something like that. Yeah, in the midst of you is is pointing primarily to himself and and his work and the work of Christ there. So how does that? I mean, so he's he's giving this answer to the Pharisees. Then you know you shouldn't be looking for the kingdom of God with these signs, but rather recognize that it's in the midst of you right now. In other words, here I am. Is is the effect then essentially to the Pharisees? Look, believe in me now before and 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 I think you could add this with the context before it's too late. Is that what's going on here? Well, yes, that's the that's what we're we're preparing for. It, you know, is that they're asking about you know when is this um, uh, or when is this going to happen? When is the end going to come? 
And Jesus' answer, you know, of course, as we've already kind of hit on very heavily, is the fact that you can't know that, and Jesus himself has said he doesn't know that. But here's what's really important. What's important is that you prepare yourself for this coming. Uh, And here's how you do that. I'm here, and this is my purpose, is to prepare you for uh, the life of the world to come, to prepare you for that coming on the last day. So tie, tie this in, and you've mentioned this already, but tie it in more closely with that second petition of the Lord's Prayer, particularly as Luther explains it in the Catechism, we pray, thy kingdom come. How, does, how do Jesus' words here relate to the way we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Well, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we, of course, you know, as I, as I said earlier, our immediate reaction is to think about, well, we're praying for the end of the world. And that's true. We are. But we're also praying for it, knowing that uh, we need to be prepared for that coming on the last day of Jesus. And the way that that happens is that God ministers to us through the church. And so the signs that we have of uh, the pure preaching of the Word of God and the proper administration of His sacraments and these things that distribute to us uh, forgiveness, life, and salvation, that's what prepares us to die a blessed death. That's what prepares us for Christ to return uh, and keeps our, uh, keeps our faith fed and ready for his return on the last day, that we may be found among those who are taken to be with him. So when it comes to the, the kingdom of God coming today, when we think about that, we should wherever, again, wherever the Lord, the king comes to be present, his kingdom is also there. And that's where we should seek to be is, is with him. And I, it's, it's striking, you know, and I was looking at this in the, in the Greek where Jesus says, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, you know, that word for look is repeated and Jesus uses it himself. Behold, look, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So don't listen to what the world points out to you, but rather listen to what Jesus says. Look, here I am for you. Receive me now. And that's what prepares you for the last day. Yeah. Don't look there. Look here. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So look, look to Jesus, look to the King where he is. The kingdom is also there. Receive him now before it's too late. Now, the the audience changes in verse 22. Jesus has responded to the Pharisees. We don't find out how they respond in this case, but he's given the response. Now he turns to the disciples and he starts talking about days are coming. So is, is Jesus now not only trans, changing his audience, but also changing his focus when it comes to the kingdom of God? Yeah, it appears so. And, you know, we don't know, of course, the Pharisees may still be part of the audience here, uh, but at least Jesus' direct audience is the disciples in this case. But um, but it makes more sense that Jesus would say this to the disciples because, yeah, the subject matter seems really to change to uh, not so much about end times, but rather to shifting from the time that Jesus is conducting his earthly ministry uh, to the time after his ascension. Uh, and, you know, we see a lot of this, of course, uh, during Jesus' uh, discourses during uh, Holy Week in John's Gospel, especially, but, uh, you know, kind of preparing the disciples for his departure. Uh, and he's pointing out the reality here that, look, whenever I am taken up into heaven, when I ascend into heaven, you're there are going to be days that you wish I was still here. You know, uh, you're going to miss the time that I'm here. Um, and uh, that that really does seem to be the shift in focus here, that now we're now we're talking about the fact that 
uh, you're going to desire to see me. And that desire uh, can perhaps lead them into some uh, false interpretations about some of the signs they'll see after Jesus' ascension into heaven, which is kind of illustrated in the verses that follow there. Okay, so just to be to make sure I'm following along here, because there, there's the days show up more than once. So when Jesus says, the days are coming, those days that he's speaking of are days following his ascension, when they can't see him visibly. And then they'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You're saying that those days of the Son of Man, they're going to to want to see Jesus again, like thinking about before he, he died and rose, or also like the days of Son of Man thinking toward the end time? Or is there maybe both going on there with the days of the Son of Man? I guess that's the, the, the phrase I'm having. I want to make sure I understand. <laughs> yeah, I think you could probably go both ways with that. I think, um, I, and I think you could probably say that both are happening there. Um, I think primarily here, the way that I'm reading it is that the disciples are going to long for the good old days, okay. or so to speak. You know that that we wish it could be like this again. Um, but I think you could also have have Jesus uh, directing them again toward longing for the days of his return on the last day. I think you could go both ways with it. But um, my, I, I guess the way that I read it, at least uh, at the, in this moment, is that it's it's kind of this idea of you're going to long for the days that we had like right now mm. uh, in the future here. Right. Well, and, and I think, I mean, I, I think that's a, I, I can see how that, that would be in the disciples mind that they would long to have these days again and then tie that in with, with what happens. Jesus is going to talk a little bit about the day that is coming when he will return. So if they're longing for the good old days and there's going to be people talking about the day, maybe there's a chance for some confusion. And that's where it sounds like Jesus warnings start to come in. So in, like in verse 23, there's going to be people saying, Hey, look, there he is, or, or here he is. Don't go. What, what is, what are these warnings that Jesus starts to give to his disciples? Well, there's kind of the impression given that you're going to have some people saying, look there, look here and do not go follow them. Uh, as if it's, you're, you're going to need, some type of guide to find uh, Jesus when he comes back. He's going to be somewhat hidden and somebody's going to have to tell you, Oh, Jesus came back and he's, you know, hiding out over here in the woods somewhere. And we have to go down, out there and find him, you know, and, uh, it, and we've seen plenty of that over the years of, of people that uh, have come and claimed to be, Hey, I'm the Messiah. You know, um, I, I, you can think of some cult leaders over the years that have done that. Uh, but there's those, there's that, that temptation. And the reason why they're going to be tempted to do that, you know, then kicks us back up to the verse before it says that you'll long for the days of the son of man. Well, that longing for something can sometimes lead us into a dangerous place because it becomes a dangerous longing uh, in that we're looking for anything, any little thread that we can possibly grab hold of and, and recover uh, what we had before, you know, uh, and, and, and again, it's, you know, he makes it clear, no, that's not how the coming of the son of man at the end is going to be. It's going to be, uh, something that can't be missed. Mm. So is, is that where the image of the, the lightning flashing coming in is the, well, I don't know. Tell me how much we should make of that. It sounds like maybe the suddenness of lightning would apply, but also perhaps more, more applicably here. It was the, 
the being able to see lightning when lightning flashes across the sky nobody misses it same thing with jesus return yeah it's 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 unmistakable. I don't know if unmistakable is a word. Unmistakable is a word, though. <laughs> yeah. And unmistakably, uh, you know, you're not going to have any doubt about it happening. And that's the way it is with lightning, you know. So it's a, it's a good illustration by Jesus. So, of course, it's a good illustration. Right. It came from Jesus. But, <laughs> you know, it's whenever whenever you see lightning in the sky, it's not like you, you look around to the people around you and say, hey, was there just lightning? You know, uh, everybody knows it, you know, and it's it's obvious and this is what it's going to be with Jesus. It's not going to be some type of uh, secret return or something like that, or uh, you know, hiding off in a in a in a compound outside Waco or something like that. You know, so it's it's going to be uh, something that's obvious for the whole world to see. Now he he makes this one. I don't know. He he makes a passion prediction here in the middle, which is you know we think of his passion predictions in Luke, and there's three really big ones where he gives a little more detail, but here's one kind of in the middle of this discourse. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This this shouldn't be news to the disciples, although we know that they don't always catch it when Jesus tells about this ahead of time. But what's the what's the function of this passion prediction here in the middle of this longer discourse? Well, I think it reminds us of, uh, of the fact that, look, before any of this end of the world stuff happens, we still have to have the we we still have to have Jesus' death and resurrection. Nothing is fulfilled at all without that. Uh, and so, you know, let's not let's not put the cart before the horse here. You know, and he's he points out to his disciples that um, you know before all this stuff happens, we still have to get through what's going to happen in Jerusalem, which again is that's where we're journeying toward in the Book of Luke, and we're not there yet. Uh, and so, you know, while while we reading this now in the uh, 21st century, look at it and we, we talk about the now and not yet, um, for us, the now is the age of the church and the uh, not yet is the, um, uh, you know, the eternal age after the return of Jesus. But for the disciples, the now is Jesus is still carrying out his earthly ministry, and you've kind of got two not yets, mm. uh, the not yet of, of his death and his resurrection, and also the not yet of uh, his return on the last day. Mm. Yeah, in terms of the, the chronology for the disciples, this is a key reminder, and, and it really helps to put this text in the context of Luke's gospel, reminding us Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is going to the cross and his resurrection. He must do these things for the salvation of the world, and I think for the kingdom of God to come. So maybe we can reflect a little bit more on that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're studying Luke chapter 17 with Pastor David Vandercook. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 18th. We're studying Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37 with Pastor David Vandercook. 
He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we were looking at this passion prediction that Jesus gives in the middle. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. It strikes me that with Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, the talk of Jesus suffering and death maybe doesn't seem to fit with the idea of a kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus has made it plain in his previous passion predictions and it will become plain when he goes to the cross that the cross isn't just some kind of a detour, but that's actually inherent in his being king. You know, he's named king of the Jews there on the cross. And though perhaps some meant that ironically, it was quite true that there he is king. Can you talk a little bit more about how the the suffering and rejection and death of Jesus fits into his bringing the kingdom? Yeah, it's the key event. Uh, that's where, you know, again, that's where we're headed. That's where Luke's entire gospel is headed. Uh, and it's true that the disciples, in all the times that Jesus predicts his suffering and death, they they don't understand it. Uh, you know, and in some cases, you know, the text even tells us that they were kept from understanding it. But uh, but but it's it's a mystery to them, and it's quite often a mystery to this day. Uh, for a lot of people in the church, uh, you know, and outside of the church for that matter, how can a, a God who dies be the king of the universe? Um, and Jesus makes it clear with that line in verse 25 that this suffering has to take place because this is the place. And, you know, as you, as you pointed out very well, you know, you have the notice put on the cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's where he ultimately is crowned king, not with a crown of jewels, but with a crown of thorns. Uh, and it, it, that's the thing that, that ultimately ushers in uh, the kingdom of heaven. That's the central event. Uh, without that, we don't have anything. Mm. Well, and I think the, the fact that the king that we expect on the last day is the one who has reigned as king most fully by dying on the cross turns that last day event into very good news because I, I know why he's coming on the last day. He's already come the first time to be the king who, who saves me. And so when I see him come on the last day, I know that he's come to to deliver me once and for all. I'm reminded of the, it, I think it's in, in Revelation where, you know, you see the scars of Jesus when he returns, that that he bears those scars, all will see him, even those who, who pierced him. You'll We see those scars, and it's it's in one of our, our Advent hymns where it talks about, you know, we gaze on those glorious scars that when, when we see the king coming at the end, we know what he did as king the first time he came. And that makes the the coming of the king on the last day, which, I mean, we're talking about judgment day here, the the separation of the sheep from the goats. Like that's a, that's a pretty scary thought. Where, where am I going to end up? It's only when I know that he is my crucified king, that that last day becomes a day of great comfort and joy for me. And so again, the, the cross is a central part of the kingdom coming, not just an afterthought. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, it's beautiful stuff where we, again, yeah, look at the, you know that it's the same guy, you know how he came whenever you, yeah, whenever you can identify the fact that same guy, he's got the, got the nail scars in his hands, he's got the uh, wound in his side and so forth uh, that remind us of what he has done for us and what he comes to do. So a, a fantastic reminder here in the middle of this discourse as we're thinking about the last day that what Jesus is doing now in his suffering, death, resurrection, this is bringing the kingdom to us so that when the kingdom comes on the last day, we receive it with joy. Jesus goes on to compare that last day coming of the kingdom 
to both the days of Noah first and then the days of Lot. So to take us into these two examples that Jesus brings, first the days of Noah, how does that how does that provide a, a comparison to what will happen on the last day? Well, the flood was for a lot of people a surprise and an unpleasant one um, because it brought about the uh, the destruction of of all of God's creation that He had created. Uh, you know, as He said before, you know, um, uh, before He had Noah build the ark, that He was grieved that He had created uh, the world that He had created because it was so filled with sin. Um, so there is there is a surprise factor there. It mm. kind of it, it comes all of a sudden upon those who do not believe. But at the same time, it's not that it came without warning. Um, you know, Noah knew it was going to come, uh, and we we learn elsewhere that Noah indeed actually uh, preached to people and urged them, uh, but they would not listen. Uh, and so the flood is a terror to those who do not know that uh, it's coming. Uh, but yeah, both, you know, it speaks to the suddenness. We talked about the lightning earlier, uh, and that, that, that speaks of the obviousness that Jesus is returning. And now we've turned really to the suddenness that it's happening when, uh, when people don't expect it. Because, uh, you know, we're going about life as usual, and all of a sudden, it's, uh, you know, there's water falling from the sky, which to us, we know what rain is now, but they didn't know what rain was then yet. So <laughs> mm. it's a, uh, a different type of thing. And, um, but yeah, uh, Noah builds the ark and, you know, he and his family to every kind of animal are preserved, uh, but everybody else perishes because they ignore the warnings that are there. Okay, so bringing up Noah, and I suppose the same with with Lot, as we'll talk about, emphasizes the suddenness of it, but also the fact that, okay, yes, it is going to be sudden, but I am warning you about it now. And I think this, I mean, ties together what he said to the Pharisees. I'm warning you about this now so that when it comes, you will be prepared. So there is a, if I can say it like this, there is a law aspect to these examples that Jesus gives. You know, here comes the judgment. This is, you know, pointing out sin and judgment. And yet there's also a gospel element to this as well, that salvation is here in Jesus. Receive it now. It it functions in both those ways, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. I think I think a lot of times you can look at the, you know, folks could look at the ark from the outside, Noah, Noah and the ark, and think, that, uh, you know, God sounds evil and vindictive uh, because he's killing off all these people, but it ignores the fact that he He gave them ample warning. Yeah. It's it's not like Noah built the ark overnight. Uh, you know, it's it, it took him a while. Uh, and so, yes, there is absolutely this opportunity uh, that God has been given, literally giving them a boat, uh, you know, to survive the floodwaters. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah. So yeah, there, there's, there is definitely a law and a gospel aspect to that. Talk, talk more about the example of lot that maybe is not as familiar of, I don't know. We don't often, we don't read that one as in Sunday school, maybe as much as Noah and the ark. (laughs) Talk, talk a little bit about the example of lot. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, God, uh, you know, God comes and speaks to Abraham and tells him that he's going to destroy Sodom, which is where, uh, Abraham's nephew lot lives. And Abraham pleads with God and says, you know, hey, you know, will you for the sake of uh, of so many people spare the town? And eventually bargains God down to 10. Uh, and obviously uh, he doesn't even find 10 righteous people in Sodom. Uh, but 
Lot, uh, he does give the opportunity for Lot to escape. Uh, he, he leads Lot and his wife and his daughters out of Sodom. Uh, and so again, we have this example where the destruction comes and, you know, namely here, the destruction comes upon the city where Lot lives, Sodom. Um, but, uh, Lot is spared because Lot is given that warning and said, if you get out now, uh, you will not die. And uh, because uh, Lot and his wife, at least for the time being, uh, and his two daughters um, believe the word that's spoken to them and leave the town, they're spared that destruction. So, yeah, I mean, same kind of thing. The end comes suddenly, uh, but it's not like those uh, it's not like the people didn't have the opportunity to um, repent of their wrongdoing, that they did not have the opportunity to leave. Uh, as evidenced by the fact that Lot and his family did get out. Mm, right. Yeah. And and in both cases, there is that, I mean, there's that warning to the faithful ones that then the faithful ones can also proclaim, particularly in the case of Noah, as you said, he's a preacher of, of righteousness, Peter tells us in his epistle. So the, the Lord gives the warning ahead of time so that those, so that people can escape the judgment that will come. And the only escape is in Jesus, the one who brings the kingdom of God by death and resurrection. These things are all tying together here, Pastor Randall Cook. So let, let's keep working our way through the text. So we've got the examples of Noah and Lot. That's how it's going to be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And and on that day, and I don't know if we've talked too much about this, everything's going to be happening like it always was. People are going to be living as they always have been. There's not going to be that sign you know, that Jesus talked about earlier. But Jesus says in verse 31, let the one is on the housetop, goods in the house, don't go back for the goods, don't turn back to the field, and then remember Lot's wife. So uh, why does Jesus talk about not turning back to those goods, to the field, and what does Lot's wife have to do with that? Well, the goods that we have, you know, God gives us good things, and and we're thankful for those good things, and, and they are good things. But any any good thing can become an idol, and uh, ultimately, um, whenever we start looking to the things of this world for all good, uh, you know, then then we've determined that we have an idol and not the true God. And so, uh, you know, if we can ask ourselves the question always, what is the thing that we can't live without? The answer to that question is going to tell us who or what our God is. Who or what is that thing that, that we cannot possibly go one day without? Uh, and if the answer to that is something other than uh, the true God, then we've got an idol on our hands here and not the true God. And so the temptation is for us to cling to the things of this world because going toward or away from judgment in the case of Sodom's destruction or going toward the Lord and his word sometimes means that we're going to have to leave some stuff behind. Uh, and if we're so attached uh, to that stuff that we're leaving behind, then we've got a problem uh, because that's that stuff is temporary. We are we are going after the things that are eternal here instead, uh, the things that do not perish or pass away. So, I mean, on the last day that I think that makes perfect sense. Like when you see fire and sulfur raining down on on Sodom and Gomorrah to turn back to it would be utter foolishness. But I, I think what this is one of the connections to what we've been reading about on this journey is that Jesus is calling his disciples to start living that life right now. Like I think that the matter of, you know, carrying your cross daily and following Jesus 
is doing these things before that last day comes. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, if I can say it this way. It's like practice for that last day. So on that last day, when Jesus shows up and I turn only toward him and knowing that that is alone is my salvation, by denying myself now, by carrying my cross now, by, by giving away things now, that's like, I don't know if I can say this, you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like practice for the last day. I start doing that now because Jesus has already called me to that life that I'll have fully when he returns. Correct, no, I think correct that's me right. if I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think that's right. I think, I think that's, that's exactly how we ought to look at this. And also the fact that, yeah, I mean, the, the life of the Christian is one of denying self. Uh, even now, it's it's not just on the last day. Yeah, we're always we're always practicing that, and um, you know, and sometimes that means that there are some things in the world that uh, that perhaps we want to do that we can't. Uh, there are there are certain, um, you know, I my, my congregations I, I think probably get tired of me using cycling analogies on everything, but I, <laughs> I ride a bike a lot, and so you know, for example. Um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of big bike rides that take place on uh, on a Sunday morning, for example, mm-hmm. uh, whenever I should be in the Lord's house receiving his word. I mean, for me, it's obviously it's also a matter of employment for me. <laughs> but, you know, just in general, as a Christian, uh, also, I'm going to look at that and say, you know, it doesn't matter if, uh, you know, I lose a little bit of if you want to call it fitness or something like that, because I can't ride on this given day. I can't ride my bike. Uh, the fact is that the Lord's gifts are far more important than anything I could do on a bicycle. Um, you know, and, and feeding my, uh, feeding my faith in this case is, is a far more important thing. And I'm sure there's other things we can think of. It might mean, you know, for the, um, uh, for the, for the kid on the, on the elite soccer team or on the elite baseball team or something like that, that, you know, if you don't make this Sunday practice or this Sunday tournament, you're off the team. Well, that might be some of the, I mean, it's not a very big price to pay, but unfortunately, sometimes it's a price that uh, that people aren't willing to pay. Um, but those are the types of things that we have to realize. These are the things of the world. And yes, they're there for us to enjoy. But there comes a time when we have to realize that they aren't the thing that that does us any good when Christ returns. Well, I mean, talk, talk a little bit more about that, because the things, you know, that, for example, Jesus mentions that were happening in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, he talks about eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, buying, selling, planting, and building. Those those things in and of themselves are not sinful things. But again, I, I think this ties into what you're saying about earlier, that the it's really a matter of idolatry. Who Who is your God? And when these things become idols for us now, the danger is that they stay idols such that on the last day, we turn the entirely wrong direction. And instead of running toward salvation in Christ, we run toward judgment in those things that ultimately can't save us. Yeah, and that draw toward this, towards the thing of this world is so strong. And that's why Lot, the example of Lot's wife is great here, because Lot's, Lot's wife is looking back at the home that she, you know, I don't know how extravagant of a lifestyle Lot had, but, um, you know, she's looking back at her home and she's longing for it. And there's sulfur raining down from heaven on it. You know, it makes absolutely no sense for her to turn back, but that's how strong that pull is for the things of this world. Uh, you know, that even something as ridiculous as that, looking back and longing to be back where I'm certainly going to die if I go back there, 
but I don't care because I want that thing that badly, you know, uh, and that just shows the depth of idolatry that we can get to. How, how does Jesus saying there then at, at the end of this little section, perhaps, so we, and I think we've heard him say it before or something similar to it. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What does that mean? Yeah, he's not being like a, a fatalist or, you know, endorsing suicide or anything like that here. Uh, but but instead, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, whoever um, whoever saves his life, that is, whoever chases after the things of this world and values the things of this world above uh, the things of God, uh, they're going to lose everything. Um, they They will have neither life in this world nor life in the world to come. Uh, but those who lose their life in this world, that is, deny uh, their fleshly desires, um, deny these things, uh, the, those that recognize who the one true God is and and so forth, they will save their life. Uh, that, that is, they will have life in the world to come. So, yeah, again, Lot's wife stands as an example of someone who sought to save her life. Now she turned back to that life that she had and ended up losing life as opposed to Lot who was willing to forsake that life and he he kept it in a very literal sense. I, within the Gospel of Luke, the I think the example that comes to my mind is the parable of the rich fool that Jesus tells back in chapter 12 who, who was so yeah. busy building all those barns for his stuff that the night his soul was demanded of him, he had nothing. He, he tried to save his life. He lost it. His riches were in this world rather than God. Here you have Jesus teaching the same thing again, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I think that's a good good comparison. So Jesus continues then in, into verses 34 and 5 and, and talks about now, so he's talked about the, the noticeability of this. Everyone's going to see it with the lightning, the suddenness of it. And now he starts talking about who this is going to affect. It's going to affect everybody, but there's there's going to be a division in this. Two in the same bed, one goes, one is taken, one is left. Two grinding together, one taken, the other left. What What's Jesus' point with this, this picture? Yeah, probably uh, the best comparison to this uh, would be to look at the separation of the sheep and the goats, like in Matthew 25, where you have, you know, this is going to happen to the believers and this is going to happen to the unbelievers. Not everybody's going to be saved. Uh, some will be saved and some will not. Um, and so we have, you know, even, and I think the, the comparison is, is really almost a poignant one here where you have, I mean, two people in one bed, that implies really husband and wife even, mm, yeah. that one is saved and one is not. Uh, and then you have, you know, two women grinding together, probably two women that work together at a mill one's taken and one's left behind. I mean, how painful is that to think about the fact that people that we know and love in this world um, may not be saved? I mean, that's, that's, that's a scary thought. Uh, and I think, it, uh, I think it's one that, that ought to be sobering for us as well, this idea that one is taken and one is left. But I think it's just the reality that uh, there, you know, while God certainly does desire all to be saved, we know that the scriptures uh, speak of that. Paul wrote that to uh, Timothy in his letter to Timothy. Uh, but 
the fact is that not all are saved, as illustrated here as well. Mm, yeah, I mean, and combined with these other images that Jesus has used, then that it certainly adds urgency to the the matter of repentance and faith, both for for ourselves and for those who would who would listen to the word that we share. With with these verses, Pastor Vandercook, we, I, I don't know that we can pass them by with at least briefly mentioning that that these verses sometimes get misused in some American Christian circles within something called premillennialism or dispensationalism. Can you, can you talk just briefly about the, the misuse of these verses and then the proper understanding of, of Jesus talking about one being taken, one being left behind, hint, hint. Yeah, as part of the uh, system of uh, premillennialism, uh, you know, just touch on that in general, uh, there is this idea that there will be a, a secret return of Christ uh, when believers will be raptured, you know, and this is where we see the the occasional bumper sticker on the car that says, right. "In case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied." And I think, and and maybe I'm just naive. For years, I, I just kind of thought that was kind of a, a joke or something like that. But I think sometimes the people that are putting that on their car are actually putting that there as a legitimate warning in their mind because. Mm-hmm. What if Christ does return secretly and take them out of their car? Then you really should look out for that car that suddenly goes out of control. You know, right. the problem with interpreting that uh, that passage or this passage that way, with interpreting it as as like a, a secret rapture, uh, so there's there's a couple problems. One is that the whole system is built on this idea that the coming of Christ, his death and his resurrection is a sort of plan B. Really, the way that God wanted to save his people was that he wanted to save them through the bloodline of Abraham and his children. Uh, and basically that, you know, the the death and resurrection of Jesus was kind of a detour off of God's actual plan of salvation. And so, the rapture, which takes out all of those who have faith in Christ, would then allow for us to get back on track, basically, and that then we have uh, salvation through Judaism, essentially. Mm. And, of course, that's the first problem. We know that can't be the case because Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Uh, and so we can't go down that pathway. Uh, But, of course, the other problem is that earlier in this passage, we already talked about the return of Jesus. It's not going to be something that's going to be a secret. It will be noticed by all, just like the lightning that flashes across the sky. So the suddenness part is correct, but what's missing there is the fact that this is going to be an obvious return of Christ, not a secret return of Christ. Mm. Right. And that, I mean, and that's the, I mentioned it earlier, the, if when you see things labeled like left behind those types of series of books or movies, that's where you're going to start encountering some of this false theology when it comes to premillennial dispensationalism. So to take care and, and a very helpful explanation as to where they, they go astray in that particular interpretation. Pastor Vanderkirk, we've got about three and a half minutes. and I want to give you a little bit of time to summarize. So before we do, take us into that last thing Jesus says. The disciples asked the question, where, which you said earlier, that's not the right question. It evidences misunderstanding. Jesus gives a very proverbial, almost cryptic answer where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What, is, what does he mean? Yeah, well, you know, whenever, whenever you want to know where there's a dead body, you just find some vultures. I actually was kind of surprised. I live in a town with, uh, you know, I live in a suburb, and we have 
just up the street from me, which is a typical suburban neighborhood, there was a dead squirrel with vultures sitting on the mm. road eating it, which is something I'm not typical. I don't usually typically see that in town. I see that out in the country a lot, but uh, but to see it in town was was something new. But but nonetheless, the idea is that wherever you see the vulture circling, you know that they have identified something that is dead, and so they're they're gathering to it to eat it to destroy it basically. Uh, and actually, we're thankful, even though we might think it's gross, we're thankful that we have vultures eating this kind of stuff because it uh, uh, it, it takes care of it for us. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, really what this does is it points us to Christ again, because who is the corpse that Jesus is pointing to here? Well, Jesus himself is that corpse. He is the one that is nailed to uh, the cross at Calvary, and the vultures that gather can be looked at as the hostile forces of the Jews and others who reject Jesus. Um, so what we see here is that, again, the death of Jesus is where all things find their fulfillment. That is the sign of the coming kingdom, is is the death of Jesus Christ. So, you know, the disciples ask where, but again, I don't think that they really had in mind, I don't think they're really asking, where is Jesus going to die at? Uh, you know, but, uh, but again, um, Jesus does actually tell them where. It's just not the where that they expected. Mm-hmm. With, with about a minute left, Pastor Vanderkirk, help us to summarize. What, what's the good news, the gospel for us in this text from Luke 17? Well, the good news is that uh, Jesus is coming again, uh, and he's coming again to, uh, to take us out of this, this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. Uh, that's the good news. We have salvation in him. And also the fact that uh, even though the things of this world um, do not uh, always seem to go the way that we want them to go, I shouldn't even say sometimes always, they rarely seem to go the th- way that they we want them to go. Uh, the fact is that the Lord is in control of all of this, and that we should not be troubled by these signs, for uh, we know that as the signs of the end are here, uh, we have the assurance that um, our 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 status is secure, that we have um, uh, that we have Christ who has come for us and who now is coming again for us. Pastor David Vandercook is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas, helping us today with Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke 17 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.